This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention, I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash startalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. Coming up on Star Talk. We're exploring the Future of Life Award. Who gets it? People who had something to do with the preservation of civilization. And most recently, it was given to storytellers. The writers, directors of the 1980s film War Games and The Day After. We're going to find out why they are celebrated now in the 40th anniversary of the appearance of those films. And what that had to say for the preservation of life, society, and civilization as we know it. Coming up on Star Talk. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. Neil deGrasse Tyson here. You're a personal astrophysicist. And of course, I got Chuck Nice with me. Hey, Neil. All right, man. And you know what we're going to talk about today? The Future of Life Award. Oh, wow. You know, I would I would think that just getting to go into the future is an award. Oh, <laughs> an award or reward for for a life hard earned. Uh, let's let's find out more about this and bring in our two guests. First, Larry Lasker. Larry, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. You you are a 2023 recipient, co-recipient of the Future of Life Award. You're a screenwriter, producer. Uh, I know some of your work. Uh, you're a co-writer of War Games. That was that was an important movie back in the 80s. We'll get yes. we'll get back to that. We also have with us Walter Parks. Walter, welcome to Star Talk. Hi, Neil. Nice to be here. Co-writer of War Games I, with Larry. That's uh, just by luck. We happen to be on the same podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and co-recipient of the 2023 Future of Life Award. Also a producer, screenwriter, uh, media executive. Uh, more recently, 
co-founder of Dreamscape Learn. And this is immersive uh, virtual reality education. But also, uh, the two of you produced Awakenings. Uh, I, I remember that film explicitly. Uh, we can talk about that. That received three Oscar nominations and co-wrote the film Sneakers. I remember that. That had Sidney Portier in it. I remember yep. that movie. So let's go back in time. Now, uh, 2023 is the 40th anniversary of War Games. Matthew Broderick. Uh, remind me, was that before or after Ferris Bueller's Day Off? I think it was before. It was right is before, right? yeah. Just before Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, and United Artists, Sherwood Productions. And who else was in that? Uh, we had John Wood, Dabney Coleman, and... Ali Sheedy. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, the the, the, yeah. the girlfriend, Ali Sheedy. And... Barry Corbin. He played the I general. I did not remember. He was in there. He was in the general. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and he plays that role well because he reprised something like that in that uh, long-running series, um, uh, Northern Exposure. He was a That's right. he was an astronaut military vet. Played that. I'm you know he puts the you know you put the chewing tobacco in and he's ready to make important military decisions. So so he remind him, us he of the improvised plot. the line. God damn it! I'd piss on a spark plug if I thought it'd do any good. Oh, he just came up with that on the set. Uh, yeah, yeah. Also, Larry, if I remember correctly, uh, he was based on the actual commander of NORAD, who he yeah, met, that General we, Hart, who we which, met. Yeah, yeah, and we named this one uh, this character Barrensville. Wait, wait. So, guys, just re remind us all. 1983. We are still in the Cold War, so this is the landscape on which this movie arrives, and it's not just grown-ups doing their grown-up things. It involves kids. And so I thought that was a brilliant juxtaposition because they're the next generation and how does it affect them? How are they thinking about the problem? Just remind us of the climate, the polit geopolitical climate, and then tell us what was the thinking behind this film. Well, I'll tell you, as has become uh, appropriate for a show that's hosted by a, uh, a physicist, one of the two pillars of that, this really was another physicist. Um, Larry had been particularly interested in uh, Stephen Hawking. I saw a documentary on TV about Stephen Hawking and the idea that he could figure out the unified field theory, but because of his condition, he wouldn't be able to communicate it. I found a fascinating existential dilemma, and it suggested that he needed someone to pass on his knowledge to, a kid who could understand him. And that character became the character in War Games, uh, a, a juvenile delinquent type whose problem was that he was too smart for his environment. Quite unbeknownst, I had come across a book about a, a middle-class family, I think in Kansas, who had a child that turned out to be a super genius and about what, what the travails of what it was like to grow up having that intelligence. So it was sort of two pieces of a puzzle there. And what's interesting, Neil, is that you asked about the geopolitical uh, climate. It really began as a character premise between these two characters, a, a kid who really needed a mentor and a super genius who needed someone to pass his knowledge on to. So all of the geopolitical stuff and all of the ideas about thermonuclear war and about uh, computers really came out of research. Uh, Larry had a background in journalism and I, mine was in documentary films. But it really started with a character story, and which is, I think, one of the reasons why it's still valid.
Well, give me give me a three sentence review of the plot. Uh, so we've got a kid in high school who accidentally hacks into NORAD. Yes, and thinking about un- unintended consequences. He, he he hacks into what he thinks is a game company just wanting to play the coolest new game and inadvertently hacks into NORAD and runs a simulation which is mistaken by NORAD as an actual missile attack. And it sort of becomes a story there which unbeknownst to him or anyone, he's actually triggered an AI program that was left over in the system by its original creator who cannot or that cannot uh, discern the difference between reality and simulation. And so, and so and it unfolds from there, and the government pick him up, and they chase him. It's a chase scene, helicopters, you know, and so, and it's Matthew Broderick, who's a completely lovable character, and you're cheering from him the entire time. Yes. And, and, and so, so this, so the moral to the story then was what? Don't have a computer. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Well, I, I, I think we stumbled upon something that, you know, it was, seems simplistic, but it, it sort of landed. Um, if there is a moral that you take away, but that there's certain games in which the only winning move is not to play. And yes, that's that, was right. the, that was the, that the computer's yes. bit of wisdom. And, and yeah. it was illustrated in a, a game of tic-tac-toe, but then sort of generalized to the whole idea of thermonuclear war. And um, again, it, it sometimes, you know, simple is best. And yeah. I think we, we were able to kind of boil down some it, complex ideas to a simple enough premise that it landed with people, particularly in the government, as it turned out. And how, how telling is it that all, all this time later, um, the fact is that uh, the AI knew better than we do. Okay, <laughs> okay, that's number one. And number two, the fact is that w- you're looking at right now, there seems to be a push towards proliferation once again. You know, where yes. for many, many years, what... Oh, nuclear, nuclear proliferation. Nuclear, yeah. For many years, it's been, let's reduce, let's reduce, let's get rid of, let's, let's move towards a place where, you know, we make this as minimal as possible. And now we're actually going in the opposite direction. Well, in many ways, we're going in the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. So, so explain to me now what the Future of Life Award is and what you guys did to earn it. Well, it's the most prestigious award that no one has ever heard of. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Says two recent recipients of the award, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, it, it's put, uh, given by the Future of Life Foundation, and you know, which is an extraordinary group that, you know, perhaps had one lapse in judgment, which is deciding to give it to two screenwriters. It's really been given to some extraordinary people, including uh, Carl Sagan, I I think, received it. Um, For a number, I I think the idea is that it's given to people who, in retrospect, have made substantial contributions to sort of the life of the planet or the quality of life on the planet, but were not recognized at the time. Um, Mm. And if you go on the website, there's some extraordinary stories there, including actual Russian commissioners who refused to actually to to accept an order uh, that was uh, ordering a launch. Um, And and I think that in this case, with both us and with Dick Meyer, who directed the day after, they're acknowledging the role of narrative. 
and popular culture in oh. spreading certain ideas and making them accessible to people that now in retrospect were sort of foundation. So what you're saying is the Future of Life Award has opened up its criteria to recognize how significant the effect of storytelling can be on the sentiment of a nation and of the world. I, Larry and I were beyond honored and surprised to be, to be given this award. But listen, you know, complex issues are difficult for people to grasp, and whether they're policymakers or the public at large. So there's certainly a role of story in all of that. You know, stories can be very powerful things, powerfully good, powerfully bad. You were in a time of a lot of very false narratives carrying a lot of weight. So I, I think in this case, the, the Institute was just trying to, I don't know, acknowledge that when done right, and hopefully we did, you know, a story in popular culture can be a way of educating the public about very well, serious we're things. all for, I mean, on Star Talk, we're all for that because we only, I think people come for the pop culture and humor, but they stay for the science, right? I mean, the, the attractors are something that matters here. Otherwise, you'll have no influence on anybody. All right, if if because they're not always looking where you need them to look, but they will come to you if there's a pop culture vessel uh, that they can react to. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more... FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hey, remember when we did that show about the science of the golf swing? Well, let's take that to the next level. And that's because PXG has developed the Black Ops Driver so golfers don't have to sacrifice distance for forgiveness. And the science proves it. 
PXG Black Ops Driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering, unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Ops Drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. Now that's ridiculously high. The higher the MOI, the more forgiving the club will play. So you don't have to square the ball perfectly for it to go straight and get distance. Add PXG's new advanced material face technology and you get incredible ball speed that pushes the distance to the absolute limits. More forgiveness, more distance, no sacrifices. PXG Black Ops Driver. Hit your tee shot straighter and farther. The proof is in the science. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment. Go to pxg.com slash startalk and use code startalk at checkout. That's pxg.com slash startalk. Use code startalk for free shipping on all equipment. PXG.com slash StarTalk, code StarTalk. When I think of this movie, uh, I wasn't thinking this at the time because it was just a movie and I was enjoying it, but a lot of themes are intersecting here. So you have the geopolitics of just nation against nation. You have the Cold War nuclear arsenals. You have game theory. You have computing power. You have um, power struggles. Uh, how does a military force interact with a genius who doesn't care about your 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 you know whether you're general or corporal or private? They just know what's true. And then you have kids caught up in the middle of it. You know, genius kids. All of that was happening at once, and it it blended and became a coherent story. Yes. So I just want to congratulate the two of you. And on I that. want to know: Did the government actually learn anything from you? Yeah, <laughs> we, we screened the movie for the president Reagan at the time at Camp David, uh, the opening weekend uh, of the war games. Whoa! And uh, I had known the Reagans growing up, so because he was a he was a movie star, right? So did you know him through the California uh, connection? He was. Uh, he and Nancy were friends of my parents. My mom okay. was a movie star, and uh, they would come to our house for Saturday night parties. And uh, my parents often showed first-run movies. So Saturday night movies was a theme. Of, uh, and the Reagans were always the first to arrive. Seven o'clock on the nose. Ding dong. And uh, so when... Uh, when the movie was coming out, I, I actually happened to run into Nancy Reagan and I said, I got this movie coming out. She said, let's screen it. So we sent it to Camp David. And the following week, Reagan comes into the meeting of his generals and says, has anyone seen this movie, War Games? You know, a kid could start World War III by accident. And it really got him thinking. And, and his generals looked into it and said, oh, yeah, it could happen. Oh, that's comforting. Yeah. Wait, so when was the when was the concept? Forgive me for not remembering this. The concept of mutual assured destruction that was around. Oh, that it, time, it had been around it? for years. Oh, it was around yeah. for years. Okay, yeah. and it's not a very encouraging strategy, I would think. But but it worked. Well, it, it worked. worked. I mean, it's <laughs> look, look what's happening without it. Um, in terms of world conflict, but it it ironically, yeah, as Larry said. Uh, President Reagan 
asked the generals about this, and it's been written about quite a lot. There's a book that reported this uh, quite extensively, and 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 uh, as it turns out, that a lot of even the current cybersecurity laws that are on the books in the U.S. government sort of have their foundation in that screening and in what happened as a result of that. Um, it, 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 it was a real sort of case study in, again, as you're talking about, Neil, how popular culture and story can actually have an effect on policy because it presents ideas in a way that can be understood. Right. And, and the, uh, it reminds me, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was uh, on a White House commission studying the future of aerospace in the nation and in the world. And we visited an air show and uh, I had, I, I boarded one of these military uh, Air Force jets. And this is very early in the internet. I mean, very early where everything was dial up and things. And so I actually, while I was there, just on this tour, I hacked into the, 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 the internet of that airplane and I saw a couple of things. So then I told them about it and they said, Oh, you can't do that. That's right. And they got angry. And I said, wait, dude. Like, <laughs> why, why would you leave? Why would you leave this perfectly secure computer terminal sitting here for me to access if you didn't want me to compromise computer, nuclear computer. secrets? No, what I'm saying is there is, am I the enemy or did I just do them a favor? Right. Right. By finding this weak spot on that plane. And so I don't think people knew how to react to that kind of breach at the time. And so, yeah, you pick them up, you try to, you know, there's a chase scene, there's a, you know, you, you had all the right movie elements to make it a, an exciting story. It's funny you say that because now the government actually hires hackers to try oh, yeah. and break into things. <laughs> that was actually... No, they didn't offer me a job at the time. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that was the premise of our, of our next movie together called Sneakers, which are really about tiger teams that are hired to test the security of, of installations or computer systems without the targets knowing in order to uh, reveal, um, you know, where the insecurities might be, where the vulnerabilities might be. Um, uh-huh. It's sometimes I think that, you know... Did did we do the world a disservice by igniting all sorts of like hackers, <laughs> like doing you know bad things, or was this a good thing to draw attention to the fact that these systems are vulnerable? And uh, the future of life believes it's a good yeah. thing. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm kind of thinking that. Yeah. Uh, so so if he worries about now security, uh, so you're saying Reagan started thinking about cyber security at that time. That would have been an early time to think that way, correct? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it was yes. the first law about cybersecurity uh, on the books. Okay. And, but it also it. led to his uh, trying to reduce uh, the threat of nuclear war with, with the Russians or the Soviets at the time. You know, I think it's great, though, because, because when you think about it, when I don't think it's hyperbolic, you know, when you look at the premise of this young kid doing this. I think that is it a good thing that, uh, you know, from a, a pop culture standpoint, we started thinking that way? Like, what if you could break into, you know, the government and you could, you know, get uh, nuclear codes or start a launch? Sure, that's unlikely. But just thinking about it in that way, I think, creates a better uh, arena for security. And you look at it today, we look at AI and 
I'm going to say if it weren't for James Cameron looking at AI in such a way where, you know, you have a singularity, you have the machines take over, mm-hmm. the, we wouldn't be thinking about AI right now in the way that we... Oh, you're, you're talking Terminator. about Terminator. Yes, thank yeah. you. I should have said the movie. <laughs> right. I was thinking of the Titanic. <laughs> I remember when the AI was dying on the board, floating, and Rose was and Rose was saying, <laughs> on the plank. "No, but yeah, like it, it's great that you get people to think a certain way, and then that becomes a collective consciousness because then yeah. we all and it affects who they vote for. It's a, it it the, it triggers an entire sequence of shift, a, a zeitgeist shift." Yeah. which is important when you need it. I, it. It is funny. When you think back then, there were sort of a spate of those movies, ours being kind of the tail-wagging one of them, which has to do with digital technology run amok, right? I, I think of RoboCop as one, actually a favorite movie of mine. Um, the first one, not the second one, I yeah, presume. Yeah, but the first yeah. RoboCop is fantastic. Yeah. Terminator, yeah. you know, in a funny way, War Games. And I think there is something about demystifying all of that. In other words, mm-hmm. and becoming aware of that so that we can actually deal with both the, you know, the opportunities afforded by digital technology or AI, but also be very aware of the uh, potential dangers. And but again, we can't, we, nor can we forget the film Manhattan Project, right, which is also a high school kid who invents an atomic bomb. Uh, and there was another one uh, just sort of in that, in that genre. So I'm wondering if all that was partly influenced by the John Hughes portfolio, which showed teenagers in high school as the primary protagonist in every story that unfolded, with the adults as the immature idiots. Yeah. <laughs> Working I'm going to say that's, it was just a marketing ploy to get teens out to the movies. <laughs> no, our, <laughs> so after you screened it for Reagan, uh, presumably others in the government would then have interest. So what was the... What was the path that came out of that screening room in the White House? Well, other people wanted to see it. Reagan actually started telling the, the meeting of generals the, the plot. And they all said, please, sir, don't tell us anymore. We want to see the movie. And, uh, okay. <laughs> and, then, we, and then the MGM screened War Games for Congress. Oh, okay. Interesting. And, and what about this very scary prospect, which Chuck has been hinting at this whole conversation? In your movie, the computer, this AI machine, had power over the launch codes so that it could make an autonomous military decision about a strike. And that is a scary prospect, then and now. Probably more now. Uh, And even before the AI part of it, um, Larry, you, you know the anecdote better. We actually, while we were working on the uh, on the film, there was a near war games like scenario that took place where a simulation was mistaken by command and control as an actual attack. Yeah, we were we were actually uh, in my uh, apartment in Santa Monica working on the script, and we were going, "Is anyone going to believe that this could happen?" And I turned on the CBS Evening News, and it was Walter Cronkite. The top of the news was, "For three minutes yesterday, the United States went on a full scale nuclear alert." It turned out it was a simulation tape that had been left in a computer. And it completely freaked out uh, the military because they thought we were under attack because the simulation was of a full-scale Russian missile attack. Fortunately, someone caught it before we volleyed our missiles back. 
So then we turned off the TV and said, yeah, people will believe it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, let's keep going. Keep on the script. Neil, you brought up the zeitgeist and you're talking about why, why kid characters. And um, we had a really interesting experience. What was it, about five or, I forget how many years ago, where we, uh, we, we were featured at a, the founder's lunch they do at Google um, uh, to have a talk, a conversation about, about war games. Because it turns out it was a fairly important film for a lot of the people who work there. Um, and at the time, looking back, we realized we got all sorts of things wrong. But we got one big essential thing right in that movie, which was that the, uh, and this is going to your idea of the young characters, that that the world wouldn't be changed by the U.S. government policies or by IBM or by Ma Bell, but would be young people either in their garages or in their bedrooms using these extraordinary new digital tools. Please tell everyone what Ma Bell is. Yeah. <laughs> the telephone company. <laughs> yeah. yeah, back when there was one. But when it, there was one telephone right. company, AT&T was Ma Bell. Okay. But 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 the point is there is a David Lightman the character our, our main character did have his roots in being kind of a punky you know anti-establishment kid and we, we certainly understood that you know that in this case innovation didn't come from institutions didn't come from the government it actually came from you know the ground up yeah. and from kids who had a sort of intuitive yeah. understanding of what these tools could be. And so if you look then over the next, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, most of the innovation did come from outside of big, big companies. Yeah, in fact, a year later, was uh, the Macintosh was introduced. Correct. You know, right. and wired in a garage. Yeah. So. yeah the, the timing of our work on, on beginning this screenplay was, was quite propitious. Um, yes. the, the first yes. thing we did when we got the deal, uh, the next week, we, I called... SRI, Stanford Research Institute, and talked to the public information guy there, told him a little bit about what we're working on. And he said, uh, all right, uh, you want to come up uh, Tuesday? And I said, sure. And we went up there and he had like five meetings set for us to meet smart people who basically told us why we had come and what questions to ask. And all we had to do was take notes. And the, the last meeting was with a bunch of futurists. And uh, one of them, Peter Schwartz, said, do uh, you know what Atari is up to? And Yeah, video games. He says, okay, well, the, the military is trying to piggyback onto them. And I think that's where your kid and your dying scientists are going to hook up. There it is. And then... Because uh, at the time, adults didn't really play video games, right? It was, it was the... just, just getting going. And, uh, and then yeah. when we, during research, when we discovered that home computers could hook up over phone lines to big computers, we thought, well, there's our movie. I mean, that was <laughs> a major revelation. That's how the kid right. alone in his bedroom could get caught up in, in the world of high you know, tech and science. And that third movie I was saying in this, in this kid genre was, it was your movie, War Games. There was Manhattan Project, a high school kid. And of course, there was Real Genius, which were uh -huh. young college kids trying to outsmart the military. Mm -hmm. the U.S. military. So given your life experience here and that you're at least celebrated, if not in the day, certainly later when people reflect on how different the world might have been had that movie not been made, is there some movie you think that needs to be made today that isn't, that we need? And even if there isn't some, what movie would you make today? 
Okay. <laughs> I, I've been giving it some thoughts. I haven't come up with a definitive answer yet, but I better keep trying. You're, you're, still, you're still thinking, oh, yeah. okay. You know, here's the thing about writing movies, and it, it really goes back to the fact that we didn't set out to do a movie about thermonuclear war oh, yeah. or geopolitics or about the emerging computer revolution or AI. As I said, it, it was a movie about, you know, an idea about two characters. And luckily, we had the background and the time to kill to do a lot of research so that we sort of had an emotional foundation. Yeah, we were open very, to what was it, going on in the world. And then we correct. got some really good informants, too. David Lewis, who was a, at the UCLA Computer Club, and he was a hacker, and he just took us through the whole every step of what a hacker would do. And I could call him up when I'm writing a scene and say, well, how do you get a computer to play itself? Number of players, zero. Okay, thanks, David. And then, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then Willis Ware, who was at the Rand Corporation, was our advisor on sort of the, the computer systems. And he had actually designed the computer system in NORAD. And when we said, unlike some experts who tell you why you can't do whatever you want to do, Willis would say, what do you need? We said, well, we need the kid to be able to access a, you know, a top secret computer. And he says, yeah, you could do it. He says, they tell you those computers are absolutely standalone, isolated. Bullshit. Everyone, <laughs> everyone wants, if they want to work from home on the weekend, they set up a little back door. Your kid could find so that it's back, a back door. door concept. Yeah. It's a back door all the way. And the programmer of the software can leave a back door without telling anybody else. Yes, right? absolutely. But yeah. but if, yeah. just to go back to Chuck's question, so I don't think you can ever decide I'm going to make a movie about a you know a concept. I mean, I or or mm -hmm. it'll just turn out to be sort of I don't know rigid, but perfunctory. Yeah, we, yeah. Yes, but we are at a moment in terms of AI that we're pretty much depending on tropes of the last twenty years. We brought up Jim Cameron's movies, et cetera. And it's a much more complex issue than that. And I wonder if there's a way to go after that idea um, with a narrative. Um, as you can imagine, Larry and I over the years have been brought more than our share of ideas for war game sequels. But in a funny way, the idea that there would be a, uh, you know, an intelligent program, our Joshua program that's been alive out there in the, Cyber in cyberspace for the last Joshua year. was the name of the program for those Correct. who didn't Correct. this. Yeah, it's been out mm -hmm. there learning and navigating the cyberspace as as the distinction between the virtual world and the physical world becomes less and less. There is probably a good story to be told there. If you make the sequel, you got to bring Matthew Broderick back as the general. Ah. <laughs> 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 that would be good. That's a that's an implicit endorsement, it's a good one, right? Now. <laughs> Yes, totally. Not that any of you all asked, but I served on a board of the Pentagon, uh, a Pentagon Innovation Board, where we thought deeply about what role emerging technologies, computing and otherwise, would or should play in national security. And we tackled AI in a statement and a report where we said, AI is fine for identifying targets and all this sort of thing, but there must be 
but there must be a human in a loop if that decision requires a kill. You cannot have AI autonomously decide that an attack should occur. That autonomously decide that an attack will occur. You have to have a human being in there. And this is a sort of an ethos that is now part of the military as we go forward trying to figure out how AI fits into our lives. So in, in the case of war games, that was not the case. In the case of war games, it was not written that way. It was like Joshua could do this all by itself. Yeah, the beginning correct? of the movies, the premise is that the missile commanders fail the test. They don't want to turn the keys to, to, to kill 100 million people until they get someone on the phone to tell them. And uh, so they decide, well, this, we can't do this. Let's get rid of the humans and just put the machines in control. Right, right. I, I've forgotten that. Yeah. That was a bit of tension at the beginning there. Right. Yes, yes, very good. Very good. Well, gentlemen, this has been a delight to have you on. Uh, we're continuing this program on the Future of Life Award uh, because coming up, uh, we're going to have Nicholas Mayer who directed the TV film The Day After, which was seen by essentially every single American when it aired. And uh, we'll pick up that conversation. Again, guys, thanks for being on Star Talk. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Do you want to set up your child for success? Of course you do. Maybe you want to save money on private tutoring, or maybe it's just out of your budget altogether. Is this a big school year for your child? Like maybe they're starting kindergarten, middle school, or high school, or some other milestone. Maybe your family moved and they're starting at a new school. Is your child ahead? Not getting challenged enough in class? Well, we love that little smarty, but we want them to be engaged. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can use it at home on the computer or on the go through the app on your phone or your tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything itself. And no more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Star Talk. Visit IXL.com slash Star Talk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Chris Cohen from Haworth, New Jersey, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Please enjoy this episode of Star Talk Radio with your and my favorite personal astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So, Chuck, continuing with this Future of Life Award, what intrigues me is that this is a set of awards that this year went to the power of storytelling to affect change, rather than people who might have themselves had access to the button and didn't push it, thereby sort of saving the world. This is, there are other ways to save the world. And you, we cannot undervalue the power of, of a good story told well, told with impact and emotion. And that brings us right to the director of the movie The Day After. I remember this movie. I was like fully alive and cognizant when this movie came out in 1983. We have with us the director of that movie, Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas, welcome to Star Talk. Uh, hi, thanks for inviting me. So Nicholas Meyer, you're not only a screenwriter, director, author, you, you're deep into the Star Trek universe. There's a universe or a world? What should I... There's like the Marvel yeah, universe. Universal work. Okay, and, universe and, works. And by the way, that's how I know him. <laughs> oh, no, okay. Uh, yeah, you were director baby. of The Wrath of Khan, co-writer yes. of the, the Voyage Home. Was that Save that's the right. Whales? That was the Save the Whales one, yes, right? Yes, it was. Star Trek yeah. 4. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. five. That's right. Yeah, my, but, yeah my, my best line in that is, what is exact change? As <laughs> they get kicked off the bus. Uh, and so... Uh, in in uh, Star Trek Discovery, you're all in the Star yeah. Trek universe. So you you you've got the right street cred here for our audience. And and in there, among there, before that, you were director of the day after. So apparently, not only are you in the Star Trek fandom, creating content for that universe, uh, you're also writing Sherlock Holmes. Oh my gosh! So a year ago, the return of the Pharaoh. And coming up, Sherlock Holmes and the Telegram from Hell. So you're a busy Ooh. guy, a busy guy. Congratulations on it all. Thank you. And and the world is a better place and, dare I say, safer place for you being in it. Um, my mother thanks you, and I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the day after is like, it's the day after total thermonuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. And it's a movie about that. It aired on ABC. It was a TV movie. It aired on ABC. Oh, everybody, what everybody was talking about this the day after, <laughs> the day after, and it's like I, all, almost the entire country watched. Yes, and one one thing at one time. One thing at one time, which doesn't happen anymore. That doesn't and, happen anymore. And and a hundred million people. I'm one of those hundred million. So so Nicholas, can you just remind us? of the geopolitical climate in 1983. Reagan was president. Gorbachev was uh, head of the uh, the party in, I think. Is the that Soviet right? Union, the Soviet yes, Union. 
Well, actually, yeah. oh, so the good old me, days. he was mm-hmm. not. Uh, his predecessor was the very aged Yuri Andropov. Yuri and Andropov. and uh, okay. this was, I, at the time, characterized as the absolute low point in U.S.-Soviet relations. There's no more Soviet Union, but U.S.-Russia relations are now at a, uh, as as bad or probably worse point than they were in 1983. But Yuri Andropov uh, believed that Ronald Reagan was prepared to push the button at any moment, and he wasn't far wrong. Ronald Reagan came to power believing in a winnable nuclear war. As if if you watch oh um, Doctor Strangelove. Uh, George C. Scott, as General Buck Turgidson, says to uh, the president, played by Peter Sellers, Mr. President, I'm not saying we're not going to get our hair must, but I'm telling you, 10, 20 million dead tops. And it was that sort of thinking that prevailed at the time that the movie came out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. We were, we were all, everyone was basically held hostage to this nuclear arms race. And so, so you, you have many talents in this space as screenwriter, director, and author. Um, how did you land the director's role for the day after? Well, I certainly was nobody's first choice. I believe... No. <laughs> oh, okay. You're, uh, you're our first you are, choice. You are our first choice, well, of course. Yes. But I, was the th- I believe I was the third director to be asked. Really? I think it's important to establish the great paradox with which we are dealing and have been dealing since 1945 mm-hmm. and the explosion of atom bombs over uh, used in Nagasaki and Ube- Hiroshima. The ability to annihilate ourselves is arguably, yeah. possibly along with climate change, the most important question that has ever faced the human race and by extension of all of planet earth. And yet, and here's the paradox. It is so disturbing that nobody can bear to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. In the words of George Bush, we say, go shopping. So what we, we do is we pretend that this Damoclean sword, which is dangling by an ever fraying cord over our heads, it doesn't exist. But as Daniel Ellsberg said, uh, hope is not a strategy. Luck, yes. luck is not a strategy. And I have right. to say that at the time I was the third director to be offered this, I didn't want to think about nuclear war either. I directed a couple of hit movies. I'd been nominated for an Academy Award. Who wanted to do this? But in fact, I was being psychoanalyzed at the time. I was lying on the couch and trying to talk my way out of doing this when my analyst, who never spoke, said, well, I think this is where we find out who you really are. Checkmate. That's how how I wound up doing the movie. Not not because I'm a professional do-gooder or altruist. And so uh, here's my memory of the plot uh, and uh, tune it up 
if I get it wrong. So it follows a family or some 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 uh, or a town in Kansas where we have a higher concentration of nuclear of silos. And in any first exchange, what I do know is you want to first take out the other person's nukes before you start going after the cities or any other targets. And so Kansas became a hotbed for the first arrival of these nuclear weapons. And they do hit, and they do go off, and you watch people attempting to survive this into the next day. That was what I remember. Well, basically... Kansas was, Lawrence, Kansas was picked simply because it's the geographical center of the continental United States. The fact that we have these missile silos all over the United States, they're all over, um, is, is part of the great folly uh, of our policy and politics because it simply makes uh, sitting targets for Every place you have a missile is a target, whereas, as Daniel Ellsberg so uh, um, precisely pointed out, we can defend ourselves with Polaris submarines, which are much harder to locate than pinning these targets all over the place. And, and, and accidents happen in these targets. You may remember some years ago in Arkansas, a monkey wrench fell down a missile silo unloose the fuel leak that almost precipitated uh, the annihilation of all of Arkansas. So, and there have been a lot of nuclear accidents, many. Two nuclear... It was a literal monkey... Yeah. Is it a literal monkey wrench? Yes, it was a monkey wrench. What Ed Hume, who wrote the screenplay, did was he simply wrote about a lot of regular people, not just one family, but different people doing different things, going to college getting married, on and on and on. Some people uh, who worked in the military who go down in those silos, among them. In other words, people like us doing what we do, and they all get nuked. That's the movie. That's the movie. I don't need to laugh, but but, but that's the... But I I remember it it was an event. It was a television event. And I also distinctly remember that after the film, there was a panel of experts, which included Carl Sagan, uh, Henry Kissinger, Elie Wiesel, uh, uh, Robert, William Buckley, uh, Robert Jastrow, r- yes, Carl Sagan, some yep. of the deep, deep thinkers of the day to analyze what had just happened. And so let me ask you this, the Future of Life Award goes to people who played some pivotal role in saving all of humanity and most people don't even know it. So it's a way to tease out of the history of human conduct those people who mattered greatly. So so if this movie was just a movie and people saw it and went about their way, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be recognized 40 years later. It's just a movie. So how did this end up mattering geopolitically afterwards? Ronald Reagan, as I said, came to power believing in a winnable nuclear war. You know, when a child falls down a well, that's a tragedy. But when millions die, that's statistics. Mr. President, I'm not Mm. saying we're not going to get our hair must. We're just talking abstraction at this point. But when you see those missiles take off, and and we've all been raised on 100 years of Hollywood happy endings, and suddenly there was, and he flipped out. And he's a Hollywood guy. 
he's a Hollywood guy. So this is especially affects him. I don't even think that's the main point. There was a general on Castro's staff who said that the Cuban Missile Crisis had not been real to him till he saw the movie. I think it's about imagining the unimaginable. It doesn't matter if you're a Hollywood actor or or not. He, yes, he may have been more naive. He told Helen Caldicott that the missiles could be recalled. And she said, Mr. President, they can't be recalled. Oh. He didn't know that. Um, anyway, what happened was this, I guess... It was just on-the-job training, that's all. <laughs> that's yeah, well. He wound up changing his mind. And when Gorbachev... After, after, he's, after he saw the film. Yes. I don't, you know, okay. I don't... I think Edmund Morris, who was in the White House, who was his official biographer, uh, and I also got to know Morris because he wrote The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, which I wrote as a screenplay for Martin Scorsese at one point. And he told me, he lived in the White House for three years, and he said the only time he ever saw Reagan lose it was after he saw the movie. And wow. ultimately what happened was uh, Yuri Andropov uh, died and, and Gorbachev took over and there was Glasnost and there was Perestroika and Reagan went to Reykjavik to meet with Gorbachev and ultimately signed the Intermediate Missile Range Treaty with him. He was on his way to signing off on a lot more, um, but he wouldn't give up his uh, strategic defense initiative, which we call Star Wars. Um, and then he... Um, so that that and it, Daniel Ellsberg explained to me, and uh, Ellsberg had been a nuclear war planner, that the treaty that resulted between Reagan and Gorbachev in Iceland, which the fearless pussy grabber in chief has now walked out of, was the only treaty that ever resulted in the physical dismantling of nuclear weapons. So that's my mm. little contribution to world history. I'm I'm interested to know how that that how it came to Reagan. Did did you guys, as a production, say, "Hey, you know, you should take a look at this"? Or yes, did, yeah, screen this at the White did, House? Did, yeah, yeah. Or did his advisors say, "My God"? Or was it just the sheer magnitude of the event itself? The fact that more than half the country it watches one television event all together, and then what kind of what kind of public reaction did that have something to do with maybe him? Uh, Chuck, that's a good point because often a politician in a democracy, in a republic, has to be responsive to what the public thinks, right? They can't be opposite what their electorate says. Otherwise, you don't get reelected. So, so Chuck, that's uh, a good point. You have, unless you have gerrymandering. Which, okay. That's a whole other show. <laughs> well, let so, me, Nicholas, yeah. Let me explain as best I can Basically, the secret of the film's success, in my opinion, but I, th I think I can sort of back it up, was the controversy that accompanied it. The very idea, everybody at ABC, the network that was making the movie, hated the movie, hated the idea of it, couldn't stand it. They knew they were going to lose all their sponsors. This is not what was shown on American network television. In wow. prime time. In prime time. They did the flying nun. They did laugh in. But their main business is to sell product. 
It's, it's, it's to advertise. And they knew this wasn't going to happen. They were going to lose a bucket on this. One man wanted this movie made. His name was Brandon Stoddard. If you're giving prizes, he's not alive, but he should get the prize because he insisted, despite death threats and all, he had to threaten to resign to get this movie on the air. This is what he wanted. He's the guy who did Roots, and he was looking to a follow-up for Roots. And the controversy uh, and the nuclear freeze movement got Reagan's attention, got the White House's attention. And before he saw the movie, Ronald Reagan regarded the movie as a threat. We were offered Defense Department cooperation. You can have missiles, you can have tanks, you can have helicopters, whatever you want. Just make sure that the Russians started the war. We told them to fuck off. So we had to sort of do it in our own way without that. But this was on Reagan's radar. And the more Phyllis Schlafly and Bill Buckley went running up and down the country like Chicken Little, insisting that the sky was falling if this movie got on the air, the more the White House and the country got drawn into, what is it? Why can't I watch it? Blah, 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 blah. And that's that's Mm. why 100 million people watched it in one night. Incidentally, there's a documentary about the making of this movie now, which is called uh, Television Event. And I believe Television Event is available on YouTube. And I must also tell you, because I just got this in the mail, that this is coming out November 15th. Tell us the title for those who are only listening. It's called Apocalypse Television. How the Day After Helped End the Cold War by David Craig. Um, I just Mm -hmm. got it in the mail this morning. It it comes out on the 15th. And I I read it, of course, I went of November. The 15th of November. uh, I immediately went to the Mm -hmm. index to see how I turned out. (laughs) Uh (laughs) And uh, Yeah. yeah, I come off like a jerk half the time. And the rest of the time, I come out okay. So I figure, whatever. Um, on balance, but but there are other apocalyptic uh, moments. For uh, for example, uh, Netflix had the film that um, uh, Don't Look Up, although that right. was comedic. But their their apocalyptic films are, are are an important genre. Oh my gosh! Yeah, but right? I think there the difference. There's a certain now that we have great special effects. It's kind of fun to see New York City inundated by water and 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 right. and, and sort of the effects take over. I'm sure there are loads of versions where the White House blows up and so on and so forth. My point is that I, as a director, figuring out about this movie while I was making it, I realized that I didn't want to make a really good piece of cinema because I realized that if the movie had great acting and great cinematography and a catchy theme song, blah, blah. Nobody was going to talk about the subject. We would do anything not to talk about the subject. And Nicholas, what I remember most is that I didn't recognize any of the actors. Well, we didn't want a lot of boldface names. That's you succeeded at that. And I I had, there was nothing else I could pay attention to but the storyline. That that's kudos to you, kudos to your whole concept. I wanted to make a movie like a public service announcement. If you have a nuclear war, this is what it's going to look like on a good day. 
we didn't show nuclear winter because we didn't know about it, but we did show the electromagnetic pulse because we did know about that. Um, and, and I started out thinking, oh, yes, right, I could unseat Ronald Reagan or some grandiose shit like that. And then I realized, no, forget all that. Just show them what it's going to be like. And we couldn't make it too terrible because people would reach for the clicker and change the channel to something else. Interesting. So it was a tightrope act. But I, uh, you know, again, I didn't want music in the movie. So there's very little music in the movie. I didn't want to be accused of goosing anybody's emotions or editorializing. Just the facts, ma'am. So but we're running short on time. Let me, a quick question here. Uh, so remind me who launched missiles first if you ignored the DOD's request to not show um, America as a first strike. I, I don't remember what started it. Nobody, no, nobody knows. We never showed it. We, oh, that, oh, that, okay. was the whole, that was Brilliant. the whole point of the Brilliant. movie was not to show who's, who started it. And by the way, when we get nuked, yeah, no one will care. No one will know. <laughs> oh, no, no, no one, one will know, know, and no, and no one, nobody's going to be afterwards going, "Who did this?" <laughs> you know, because it's just not going to happen. Because it'll be so. No, we'll be sitting here talking, and then we'll be gone. And it's not a question of and who that's started it. it. Yeah, and it won't. Right. right, it, won't, right. It, won't, it won't matter. Um, all right. So, well, so, yeah. All right. So, Nicholas, give me give me something positive to think about going forward. We have to get past the paradox of not wanting to think about this. It's not enough right. to, you know, contribute to some charity online, send in, you know, $10 and hope for the best. Luck is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. You have to get out in the streets and demand change. And you have to do it in astronomical numbers in order to make things happen. This is a call to action. You bet. Is really and, 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 and there's okay. not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of time. Yeah. All right. Well, it's interesting you say that because what, what the thing that is most disturbing about this issue right now is that you have talk when, um, and saber rattling uh, surrounding limited strike capabilities. Oh, yeah. Or, this is a big thing that's being bandied about right now, and I don't know how you feel about that. You but don't? I could guess. I could venture to guess. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, the thing that's really dumb about nuclear weapons is that they can never be used, and yet we we keep on building more and more of them. Um, you're not going to get the toothpaste back in the tube. Once this starts, it won't stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's a, a, a call to action, a call for peace, a, a call for sanity. It's a call yeah. for sanity, there, one hopes, yes. Sanity. There it is. Well, Nicholas, first, congratulations on this award. Thank you. Um, we need more people to keep the world safe, whether they're household names or not. And I'm delighted that we could at least help in our little way to bring attention. I'm extremely grateful and very honored. Excellent. All right. All right, Nicholas. Uh, Chuck, always good to have you, man. Always a pleasure. So this has been Star Talk. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson here. You're a personal astrophysicist. And we uh, had a celebration of the Future of Life Award. Uh, check it out, futureoflife.org online. As always, keep looking up.
hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.